0: All right, well, let's pray as we come before God's word this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord God, thanks for um, yeah, all that we've uh, learned so far this morning, all that we've been reminded of, um, of how you uh, care for us and how you uh, love us and equip us um, for everything that we need to do. Um, yeah, God, we pray that we would uh, learn more about that as we come uh, before your scriptures this morning, before this passage of Ephesians 6, um, and I pray that we would uh, be able to apply it to our lives as has been prayed as well this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> uh, well, some of you know um, that I'm studying at Bible College at the moment, and one of my subjects uh, this semester is church history. Uh, We've just finished studying the Reformation um, and the amount of fighting during that period has astounded me, really. Uh, They fought to have the Bible, they fought to teach the Bible and they fought to have it enforced and taught publicly um, by fighting to raise up rulers who believed the Bible. They fought doctrinally and they fought physically. They fought people, they fought kings. They say they fought the devil himself. Um, and of course the reformers fought necessary battles over the authority of scripture alone, salvation in Christ alone and through faith alone, for the good of the church and for the glory of God. Um, but we're going to look this morning at um, how we fight battles and um, perhaps by the end of the service you, um, uh, we will understand what sort of church, uh, fights the church should be involved in. <clears throat> Uh, One thing is for sure, though, church history involves a lot of fighting. And while in the West we've had a form of peace for the last few centuries, uh, it is becoming increasingly clear that the world is once more waging war against the church. The Western church is today increasingly being called to fight once more. And so the, um, the question becomes, how do we approach these battles? How should we fight? What should be our aim? Uh, Well, that brings us to uh, this chapter that uh, Ali's just uh, read out to us, this passage of Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to study this uh, fairly famous passage uh, commonly known as the armour of God. And through it, we'll gain an insight into what it means to fight spiritual battles. As we start looking into this uh, rich passage, uh, I want to draw your attention to verse 10. Um, Because Paul introduces this passage by commanding us to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Well, why is this significant? Uh, Well, right from the outset, we're presented with the fact that we are only going to get through spiritual battles, battles for the faith in God's strength. See, whatever this fight is, then it's not easy. Uh, however we're going to win it, uh, it's not in our earthly human means. And whoever's going to win it, uh, it's not going to be us alone. We need God's strength. Um, God's strength uh, is uh, an idea that's come up a few times in the book of Ephesians. And I'll just uh, use Ephesians one nineteen to show you what I mean when I talk about God's strength or God's power. Uh, Ephesians one nineteen starts halfway through a sentence. Paul is uh, praying, just a bit of context, Paul is praying that the Ephesians may know, and this is where I'll pick it up, from verse 19... Uh, beloved, that is power, that is strength. Uh, the strength that he offers us is the same power and might by which he raised Jesus from the dead and enthroned him far above all other thrones all, uh, over all of heaven and earth for all eternity. <clears throat> Uh, the fact is that we need God's strength to get through spiritual battles, but the other glorious side to that truth um, is that God freely offers us this strength to get through these battles, and if we have His power, we need nothing more. Uh, but I digress. What do we mean when we say spiritual battles? <clears throat> uh, well, back in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, we notice um, the repeated idea uh, of this, or the word evil is used quite a few times. Uh, We read the schemes of the devil. Uh, Of course, that's an evil idea. The forces of evil, we read the evil day, the evil one. Uh, This battle, then, is a battle of good and evil. In other words, we're in a spiritual battle whenever we're having to fight to do something good as opposed to evil, something right as opposed to something wrong, something that is God-honoring as opposed to something that is God-rejecting. Uh, But there's more to it than that, because uh, ultimately the war between good and evil is, of course, the war between Jesus and Satan, between God and the devil. Uh, And, of course, in this great war we can either follow God or Satan. Uh, But because in the Garden of Eden uh, Adam chose to follow Satan, and because he was the first human and the representative of all mankind, we are now born following Satan and his kingdom. Uh, flick back to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 to 3 to start, for a start. <clears throat> uh, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, Paul says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Uh, That that I just read is bad news, uh, because God has won the war, and God is in the process of rounding Satan and his followers up to be judged and punished. That's why the passage ends with us being children of wrath, uh, the, the phrase uh, simply means that as God's enemies, we should be punished by him, and that goes for everyone. I remember what uh, Dave read earlier to us from Psalm 90 about how God uh, punishes us, um, God, God, uh, that death is, a, is God's punishment, God's wrath on us. Uh, but that's not the end of the story, is it? Uh, I'll keep reading uh, Ephesians chapter 2 uh, from verses 4 to 7. But God, says Paul, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us in him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God, in his infinite grace and mercy, took some of his enemies and gave them a spot in his kingdom. And not just any spot either. He took us and enthroned us alongside Jesus the King. Now, of course, if God has brought you under his rule, and if God is the enemy of Satan, obviously Satan is going to wage war on you. Those of us, then, who follow God are Satan's enemies. Um, I'll expand on that a bit later when we look at verse 12. Um, but before we get to that i want to i want to um implore you if you're not a follower of god start following him today ask forgiveness of him from for your rebellion accept his offer of peace submit yourself to his rule god has done all that is necessary for peace by taking the punishment on himself just believe in him as your savior and kin now, with that as introduction, let's uh, delve into this passage and see how we fight this battle. Uh, as you'll see in your outlines on your uh, bulletins, um, there will be two main points, the requirement to stand strong and the resources to stand strong. And so let's jump right into the first point, the requirement to stand strong, from verses 11 to 13. Now, uh, In those verses, Paul introduces us to everything we need to know about this battle what we're supposed to have achieved by the end of it, who the enemy is, and what we have, what we have available to us so that we can achieve that. Uh, or, if you want to alliterate, the aim, the attacker, and the armour. <clears throat> so let's start with the aim. What should we have achieved by the end of our fight? Now, well, verse 11 tells us that our goal is to stand against the schemes of the devil, Verse 13 tells us something very similar. Uh, It says that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Uh, Did you notice three times in those those two half verses and then uh, once more again in the the start of verse 14, we're told to stand. Uh, That's the goal of this fight is just to stand. Um, And I don't know about you, but I find that surprising. Often we come to this passage wondering how we are to fight, but the focus is actually on how to stand firm through the fight. And this is both encouraging and really sobering to me. Uh, It's encouraging because it reminds us that Christ has won the battle. Christ has done everything, uh, all the fighting that needs to be done in this battle um, to win it. In the war. Uh, last week, Mick preached uh, about how Christ came to earth and bound the strong man, bound Satan, waging war against Satan's kingdom and defeating it. Uh, at the same time, though, uh, this truth about how we are to stand is a really sobering thought um, because, as I said, we come often wondering how we are to go about fighting. Uh, but God says it's going to be hard enough just to stay standing through the battle. And we mustn't gloss over that. It is hard to stay standing. The battle is fierce and it's becoming increasingly more so. <clears throat> uh, if you doubt how, uh, how fierce this battle is going to be, let's look at the second sub-point, the attacker. Uh, Paul introduces him at the end of verse 11 when he refers to the schemes of the devil. And then in verse 12 he goes on to expand on that. Uh, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, he says, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Uh, This verse is very important as we talk about spiritual battles. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, says Paul. Let us not be confused about this. (coughs) Uh, Well-meaning Christians have at times caused untold pain by forgetting that spiritual battles are not fought in physical ways. And now, as traditionally nominally Christian countries like ours are losing their Christian influence, it's important that we remember who the enemy is in the battle for faith. Uh, Look again at verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These terms all refer to the demonic forces of evil. Uh, The phrase rulers and authorities uh, is used a few times in the New Testament to describe either earthly rulers or spiritual ones. Um, But in Ephesians, it it seems to most likely refer to spiritual ones. In chapter 3, verse 10, Paul uh, says that God brought the church together to show his wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Um, The other phrases here in 6.12 are much less ambiguous. Cosmic powers over this present darkness, well, they must be demons. Uh, And the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places can also only refer to demons. And now you might be thinking, well, hang on, we don't fight demons. That's heavenly stuff that God and his angels deal with. We fight here on earth, don't we? And especially in the West, demonic spiritual influence is not something we really think about except maybe in sci-fi, fantasy, horror-style stories. But the Bible says we do fight demons on earth, in the sense that they wield their considerable influence on earth to oppose God's work, which is the church. Uh, The phrase, in the heavenly places, gives us a clue about that. It's used five times in the Bible, and all the times are in Ephesians. Uh, and it always refers to a heavenly reality that affects the, that directly impacts the church here on earth. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 3, we, we're told of the spiritual blessings that we have in the heavenly places. 1, 20 tells us that Christ is enthroned in the heavenly places, and 2, verse 6 uses the same phrase to say we sit enthroned him with, with him there too. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 10 tells us of the church's role as a demonstration to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And likewise, this verse here tells us that the church, even though the church doesn't fight physical battles on earth, the spiritual enemies we have in the heavenly realms do wage war with us in a way here on earth. Um, As an illustration, in Daniel 10, we've been studying this a bit in Bible study lately. Uh, Daniel 10, Daniel receives a vision of an angel. It could possibly be Jesus, it's hard to be sure. Uh, But the angel says that on the way, he had to fight the demonic prince of Persia. And after giving the message, he would have to return to fight that demon. uh, Then later, he would have to fight the demonic prince of Greece. And you say to me, that's a weird thing to say. Uh, Why is it significant well, because in the very next chapter, the angel's message turns out to be uh, how the Persian and then the Greek empires were going to oppress God's Jews, uh, the Jews who were God, God's people, of course. Uh, see, the demons can think of no better use for their spiritual earthly influence than to attack God's people. <clears throat> now, once uh, So it's um, also important um, to remember about demons that their powers are spiritual. Uh, they don't often work in a way that can be seen physically. Uh, we often think of, um, uh, of things being inexplicably knocked over or that sort of haunting. Um, but often but uh, the, the Bible tells us their influence is more inward. Now, C.S. Lewis illustrated this well in the Screwtape Letters, in which a young demon, Wormwood, learns how best to attack Christians from his uncle's screwtape. Uh, The book is full of phrases like remind him, make him think, guide his thoughts. Um, It's a work of fiction, of course, but it does help us uh, appreciate and visualize the invisible but real spiritual inward battle that we uh, fight. At the end of the day, we must remember that we are in a fierce spiritual battle against a powerful spiritual enemy. We don't have enemies that we fight here on earth, physically fight here on earth for the gospel's sake. Uh, Yet the spiritual enemies that we do have, namely Satan and his demons, do have a significant spiritual impact that we must fight here on earth. And so if we are fighting a powerful spiritual enemy, then we will need a powerful spiritual armour. And that brings us to the third subpoint the armour. I've already talked about verse 10 and how we are called to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then in the first halves of verses 11 and 13, this strength is illustrated using the imagery of armour. Put on the whole armour of God, says Paul. Take up the whole armour of God. Uh, The repetition emphasises the importance of of having this armour, of having God's might to protect us in the battle. Uh, verse 11, uh, Paul uses the phrase put on and in verse 13, take up. And as you'll notice later on, these phrases and equivalent ones come up again. Um, and basically these are phrases that describe how a soldier prepares for battle. Some armour is worn into battle and so it must be put on. Some is carried into battle and so it must be taken up. That's where you get those phrases from. Um, but most but. um, both phrases tell us that we must, metaphorically speaking, avail ourselves of God's strength for when we are spiritually attacked. We must have the armour we need when we are marching into battle. We must actively take up the whole armour of God and we can only march out to battle when we are armed in his strength. So that leads us to the second point, the resources to stand strong. Uh, In verses 14 to 17, as I've said, Paul expands on what the armour is. Each part of the physical armour has a purpose, and Paul had these purposes in mind when he assigned each one a resource that God has given us. Uh, He assigned each piece of armour a corresponding resource that God has given us uh, so that we can stand strong in his strength. Uh, These don't come out of nowhere. Uh, they, They can be traced all throughout Ephesians. I and mean, you can study that for yourselves in your own time if you like. Um, but, in, and, but here Paul gives the Ephesians this handy illustration to remember them and to remember their importance. Um, <clears throat> and so to make it easier for the Ephesians to imagine, Paul ordered these according to how a Roman soldier would have prepared himself for battle. The belt was put on first and then the breastplate over that. The shoes would have been put on next. And then basically as the soldier was walking out the door, he would have grabbed his helmet, his shield and his sword. And so you get that order that uh, you read there in verses 14 to 17. Um, But as you can see in your notes, I'm not going to follow Paul's ordering. Um, Rather than ordering them by how a soldier would have prepared for battle, um, I've grouped them by purpose instead. Uh, so the breastplate and, and helmet show God's protection of us, the belt and shoes his preparation of us, and then the sword and the shield his provision for us. Uh, so then let's start with sub point A, God's protection of us in the battle. <clears throat> uh, verse fourteen commands us to stand therefore having put on the breastplate of righteousness. <clears throat> Likewise verse seventeen tells us to take the helmet of salvation. The breastplate and the helmet were for the Roman soldier essential pieces of armor because they would save his life. And of course, then, we still consider them essential. Given the choice between a Kevlar vest and any other piece of armor, you'd take the Kevlar vest. Uh, And of course, the helmet would probably be a close second. It's just common sense. Uh, You could lose your arm and your legs, and it would just be a flesh wound. Uh, but your chest and your head house vital organs like your lungs, heart and brain. The helmet and the breastplate then were literally life-saving bits of armour. And so too are the righteousness and salvation that God gives us, except that these do not protect our physical life but our eternal life. Uh, Since God has given us salvation, no one can take away our eternal life. This is shown throughout the Bible. Uh, Psalm 127, 7 and 8 says, uh, The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. John three sixteen God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In Romans 8, 38 and 39, I am sure that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is an an eternal, unshakable fact that our eternal life cannot be taken away. Uh, the breastplate of righteousness is, uh, in, is uh, inextricably linked to this idea of uh, eternal salvation. They're like two sides of the same coin. Uh, God gave us salvation through Christ's righteousness that he bestowed on us. And because of that, our eternal life is eternally protected by God. However, saying that begs an important question. Why would Paul command us to actively put these things on if no one can remove them from us? Well, actively putting on salvation and righteousness means living out those eternal truths. And once again, these ideas are related. Uh, As the great 18th century American pastor Jonathan Edwards put it, God has in his wisdom designed the assurance of salvation in such a way that it cannot be felt unless we are living in a godly way. 1 John makes this fact abundantly clear. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 says, By this we know that we have come to know God if we keep his commandments. Verse 6 of that same chapter, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked verse 29 if you know that he is righteous you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him now that's just three verses of many in that one chapter alone that make that same point over and over again in the bible it is made clear that if we want to feel assured that we are saved if we want to be sure that we have christ's righteousness imputed to us we must act that righteousness out And, well, why is it important that we we are assured of this? Well, knowing it changes the way we fight, in a way. Uh, When I played cricket as a young teenager, we would deliberately hit our pads with our cricket bats. Uh, It was one of those silly things that you did as kids, uh, and it probably mainly served to psych us up. Uh, But it also gave us a bit of trust in the protection. With the pads on, the ball couldn't hurt our legs. And that meant we, we could play with more confidence since we wouldn't be so scared of the ball. Uh, similarly, assurance of salvation gives us confidence in the battle. Not confidence in ourselves, but, God, but confidence in God who protects us, that, we, that no one can snatch us out of his hand. <clears throat> uh, so then, God's protection helps us to survive, but we are called, uh, remember that we are called to stand in the battle and stand strong. Well, that's where the belt and shoes come in. They prepare us to stand firm in the battle. Uh, read, me, read with me verses 14 and 15 again. Uh, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. For the Roman soldier, the per- main purpose of the belt was to prevent their loose clothing from tripping them up in the, in the battle from getting tangled in their feet and tripping them up Uh, even if you're like me and you don't really wear loose flowy robes like theirs it's not hard to imagine it being a disaster waiting to happen when walking into a battlefield and in the same way deceit can figuratively trip you up Proverbs has a lot to say about this Uh, Proverbs 10 verse 9 tells us whoever walks in integrity walks securely but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out uh, Proverbs twenty-one six: the getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. Uh, Proverbs 26.27 and 28, uh, whoever digs a pit will fall into it and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. A lying tongue hates its victims and a flattering mouth works ruin. Uh, All of these are talking about how uh, not only is lying sin, not only is it unloving to deceive those around you, uh, but in the end, uh, says Solomon, you will be hurt by it yourself. Eventually your lying is only going to hurt you. On the other hand, says Paul back in Ephesians 6, truth, honesty and integrity prevent you from having loose ends that can figuratively trip you up in the spiritual battle. Satan loves to have things to accuse us of. Uh, The word Satan literally means the accuser or the liar. But by living truthfully in word and deed, we don't give him that opportunity. Uh, Shoes, likewise, also help us to stand in the battle. Uh, The Roman army knew the importance of footwear, of good footwear. Roman soldiers had the best sandals available at the time. They were designed so that you could walk uh, huge distances in them, and as a result, the Roman army was famed for how fast they travelled. Likewise, the gospel of peace gives us the readiness to go far and wide and gives us a sure footing in the battle for faith. And surprising though, um, that Paul chose this specific way to describe the gospel, the gospel of peace. Uh, in fact it's actually the only time in the bible that this phrase is used and strangely enough it's in the middle of a passage on spiritual warfare so let's unpack it a little bit what is the gospel of peace Uh, well i explained this a little bit earlier we are born god's enemies but god has made a way that we can have peace with him through the death of his son Uh, We looked at Ephesians 2 a bit earlier, which looks at the the, uh, cosmic truths at play here. Uh, Romans 5 looks at it on a slightly more personal level. I'll just read verses 1 and 10. You don't need to turn there. Um, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. Uh, as I said before, since God will one day crush his enemies, the opportunity for peace with him is good news. And that's what gospel means, good news. Uh, so then the gospel of peace is the good news of how we can have peace with God through Jesus' death. However, uh, why does Paul use this phrase in the middle of a call to arms? Well, it's appropriate for two reasons. <clears throat> Uh, firstly, it reminds us that we are on the right side of the battle. This battle won't last forever. God will one day crush all his enemies. And when, is, when all is said and done, we will live at peace with him forever. Uh, Satan can tempt us to doubt that fighting him is worth it, but for the sake of peace with God, it is. <clears throat> The second reason this is an appropriate description of the gospel is because of the way it reminds us to spread the gospel. I said earlier how good shoes help us get to where we need to be and the readiness of the gospel does so too. Uh, Paul exemplified this readiness a few verses later in verses 19 and 20. He said that his aim was to open his mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Uh, Paul was in prison when he wrote this, and even in spite of that imprisonment, he still st- sought to share the gospel. I remember Paul. Uh, sorry, God calls us to show compassion to even those who are enemies of the gospel, uh, for the who are now enemies of, for the gospel, uh, just as He does. Allow me to illustrate this um, compassion that God shows us. Uh, the American-backed forces in Syria are, taking to, are pushing to take back the last Islamic State-ruled town. Uh, but wh- rather than raising the city to the ground um, in order to eliminate the enemy, they've had to move slowly, allowing people the opportunity to escape. Those who are captives or who want to abandon the sinking ship of ISIS have the opportunity to escape an otherwise certain death uh, a certain horrendous death through the shelling, air raids, and fighting that will ensue as the forces take back the town. Uh, in the same way, God is ready to decimate his enemies. But mercifully, he is allowing us the chance, the time to escape if we so desire. Uh, and those of us who uh, believe in him can rejoice that we've done so. That he has rescued us from that, um, but while there is still time, we should encourage everyone to take God up on this offer of peace. Listen as I read uh, two corinthians five eighteen to twenty one <clears throat> all this is from God who through Christ reconciled For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, Because someday soon, all who refuse will be counted as God's enemies and judged accordingly. And so, once again, Paul calls us to be ready to share this gospel of peace. But how can we become ready? Well, let me give you a few ideas which uh, I, f- I personally find helpful. And Part of it is just knowing the gospel well. Uh, when we know the gospel well, it can be easier to show how it applies to everyone, whatever is going on in their life. Um, but it's also important to have a structure in your mind of what you can say. Uh, one that helps me a lot, that's, uh, and I know has helped a lot of others, um, is the two ways to live resource. Uh, uses six uh, little pictures um, with matching Bible verses and short explanations to show that we all sin by dethroning God in our hearts and how Christ died and rose again to take away that sin. Uh, Another way of learning is uh, watching and listening to people who do it well. Uh, Watch them steer a conversation to the gospel. Uh, learn from their love and compassion and hear how they show people their need to be right with God and how only Christ can make that possible. Um, that's not an exhaustive list, those are just a few ways to um, to foster the readiness of the gospel of peace. I uh, trust that the Holy Spirit will help you as well as you uh, seek to do that. Um, so God, prepares us for the, uh, God protects us for the battle and he prepares us for it as well. And he also provides us with everything that we need to fight effectively, a sword and a shield. The sword and shield were the tools of the trade for a Roman soldier. A civilian might need some or all of the other bits of armour if they were entering a battlefield, but a warrior needed a sword and shield. And because of that they remain to this day symbols of war. Uh, Likewise, the spiritual sword and shield are what we need as we fight spiritual battles. Let's read verses 16 and 17. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Uh, I'm going to look at the shield of faith first. <clears throat> the shield Paul referred to uh, was a large plate of metal, almost the size of a door. Uh, it was meant to be something that you could hide behind and that would protect you from a ranged attack. If you think of a modern riot shield, you'll be, uh, that's pretty much exactly the same sort of thing. Uh, faith is like that shield because with it we can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, says Paul. Uh, what's that referring to <clears throat> uh, well the evil one is obviously a reference to satan and the flaming doubts of the evil one are lies They're temptations temptations to sin temptations to disbelieve god's goodness satan tempts us by telling us lies remember what i said about how his name means liar uh, he tells us lies about ourselves about sin and about god <clears throat> uh, and so uh, we sin uh, because we don't believe that God is going to do or give us that which is most beneficial to us. Satan tempted Eve this way, uh, starting by questioning off whether God would, uh, sorry, starting off by questioning whether God would forbid them from eating the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and, que- and suggested that it was because God didn't want them to be like Himself. Uh, of course, this was a lie. Adam and Eve didn't need to become more like God uh, when. Uh, they were made in his image in the first place. And, of course, it wasn't beneficial for them to know good and evil. Uh, God was protecting them for that, from that in uh, his command. Uh, likewise, we see a similar ploy from Satan when he was tempting Jesus. Uh, he questioned whether God had the best in mind for him. Don't you need to eat, Jesus? Don't you want to reign, Jesus? All you need to do is worship me and it's all yours. But Jesus responded by looking to God's faithfulness and provision in his word. Uh, That's where the faith comes in. When Satan's lies tell us to doubt God's goodness, faith tells us that we can trust him. Uh, Faith in the trustworthiness of God and in the greatness of his promises destroys the power of Satan's lies by showing them for what they are, lies. Uh, And so faith is like a huge shield a wall which Satan cannot fire his flaming arrows around. Well, of course, that's great in theory, but how do we foster that sort of faith? Well, we, <clears throat> we find that sort of faith in knowing God's word, just like Jesus did. Romans 15.4 tells us, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. God has given us his word so that we can find hope in his promises and in his faithfulness. Uh, we can also ask God for this faith, um, and we, we should ask God for this faith. Uh, like the man who prayed to Jesus, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief, Mark 9.24. Uh, but we aren't simply called to hide behind this shield of faith, but to fight back like a good soldier. Uh, and what do we fight with? Well, we read there the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The sword was the main weapon used in close quarters, hand-to-hand combat. Uh, This is the sort of combat Paul was alluding to earlier when he said we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So what do we use as our sword? Well, our automatic response as Reformed people is, of course, the word of God. Uh, this image is also used in Hebrews 4.12, where it says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. But technically though, here in chapter 6 of Ephesians, the passage first says that the Holy Spirit is the, word, is the sword. <clears throat> um, some say we as Reformed Christians believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. They say we are too preoccupied with the Bible to pay attention to what the Spirit is doing, that we're too focused on the Bible to let the Spirit say and do what he wants. Are we lending credence to that view by saying that the sword is the Bible? Well, in a word, no. The Bible allows no distinction between the work of the Holy Spirit and the powerfully proclaimed Word of God. Uh, To be fair, there may be times for saying uh, that there may be at times grounds for saying that we uh, should acknowledge the work of the Holy Spirit more. Um, Of course, that is as we come before the Scriptures. But the Scriptures are very clear that we cannot divorce the Spirit's work from the Bible. Now, remember what Jesus said about what the Spirit says and does. Uh, in John, 3, uh, John 16, 13-15, you don't need to turn there, but uh, Jesus said, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you to the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you all that the father has is mine therefore i say that he will take what is mine and declare it to you The holy spirit does not work independently of the word of christ when he speaks he speaks the word of christ and uh, where do we find those words of christ that is the words christ spoke and the inspired words about christ well we find them in the bible uh, the sword then is the Holy Spirit working is not the Holy Spirit working independently of the Scriptures, rather it is the Holy Spirit working through the Scriptures. And equally it is the Scriptures empowered, illuminated, and applied by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Paul says back in Ephesians five eighteen that we should be filled with the Spirit. Uh, and in a parallel passage, in Colossians 3:16, he says that we must let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I say there a parallel passage because uh, the, uh, what follows in those verses is almost exactly the same. What uh, that is to say that the spirit, being filled with the Spirit and let, letting the word of Christ dwell in us, um, um, leads to the same things. Uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit and having the Scriptures work powerfully among us are so intertwined they're virtually the same thing. They go hand in hand. Uh, and so Paul says here, Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Well, how then do we take up this sword of the Spirit? How do we take up the Word of God? Uh, well, there's a lot of uh, ways that we do that, but at the end of the day, uh, we really need to know what it says. Uh, We learn what it says by memorizing scripture, by studying scripture, by reading it humbly and prayerfully. Um, Also, we need to not be afraid to use it when it is challenged. Uh, In the gay marriage debate a couple of years ago, uh, many Christians tried to use secular arguments when debating with secular people. And it seems logical to do that, of course. Um, But at the end of the day, remember that spiritual battles are fought with spiritual weapons, and the spiritual weapons are the Spirit of God working powerfully through the proclaimed Word of God. God has provided us with all that we need to fight the battle, His powerful Word and faith in His promises through His indwelling Spirit. Uh, as Peter said in the opening words of his second epistle, his divine power has granted everything, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. <clears throat> so God has called us to stand strong against the raging hordes of his enemies, Satan and his minions, who want to take out their rage on God's church. And like the good king that God is, he's given us all the protection, preparation and provisions we need to stand strong in that battle. (coughs) In short, he arms us with his strength. Remember what I said earlier. Uh, This strength is the power by which Jesus was raised from the dead and enthroned far above all other thrones. God's strength is infinite strength and he offers it to us. Uh, So how do we call on that blessing? Well, that brings us uh, to verse 18. We avail ourselves of God's strength, verse 18, by praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Prayer is how we call on God's strength. Uh, standing strong in uh, standing strong when all of Satan's forces rile against us is hard, but God offers us strength if we ask. Uh, John Piper, I love this illustration. Uh, likens prayer to a walkie-talkie. Um, to obviously continue this ar- idea of armor and warfare, uh, he says, "Life is war. That's not all it is, but it is certainly that." Our weakness in prayer is owing largely to our neglect of this truth. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. End quote. Uh, Like soldiers call for battle... Sorry, call for backup or extra resources while in the field. Through prayer, we can call for God to give us strength in the battle. However, unlike a soldier's headquarters, God is everywhere. He is willing and able to help us any anytime immediately. And so says Paul. We should call on him all the time. We should ask him for every need that we have. We should make every effort to gain his strength. See, it is no waste to spend our last drop of energy in calling on God for his strength, since his strength more than makes up for it. And we should pray for each of our brothers and sisters supporting each other in our personal battles like the loving family that we are. So that having been said, let me pray for us uh, to close now. Lord God, uh, we come before you aware of the war that you have uh, called us into. We don't know uh, what the battles before us are and we don't fully know what you have called us to do in the future. Uh, But we know that Satan will oppose your work. Uh, But God, thank you so much that you have defeated Satan and that one day you are going to crush your enemies once and for all. Thank you that you have saved us from being your enemies um, and that you have brought us into your kingdom. And thank you that you offer us your power by which you've raised Christ to reign, to stand firm against all the schemes of the devil. And so we pray that you would fill us with that power, clothe us in your spiritual armour today, this week and for the rest of our lives. Amen.